CGM 99.1 FM programming is hosted almost exclusively by community volunteers. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are that of the host and their guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of CJAM FM. For more information and resources, visit our website at cjam.ca. Hi, I'm Samantha, a past guest on CJAM's HandyLink. You're listening to HandyLink on CJAM 99.1 FM, reaching high ground in Windsor, Detroit. Sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. For more information, check out ICHA Windsor on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. In this segment of our show, Matt Greenwood will be giving us an update on Sockability and its goals for 2023. So, what are some of the goals for Sockability for 2023? I think our first most important goal would be a broader range of clubs across Canada, from coast to coast to coast, offering uh, accessible and inclusive soccer programming. Uh, And a big part of that comes from uh, advocacy work, promoting uh, what other clubs are doing, uh, and sort of building up a little bit of that competitive instinct, if you like, in clubs that, well, if these guys down the road are doing it, that's something we really should be doing as well. Um, so, so building on that um, greater awareness for, for grassroots soccer clubs to really be as inclusive and accessible as possible. Uh, and we'll do that through, as I said, advocacy, um, through workshops with, with clubs, and even some online sessions that we could do uh, with some of the clubs that are a little further uh, afield. Um, our goal is, is ideally to get to at least 200 clubs across the country. Uh, we're probably at about 40 clubs right now, so there's a, there's a long way to go, uh, but we know it's not going to be an overnight fix. Um, so that'll probably be our first. The The second is is what we're calling the Sockability Festival Series. Um, and we're going to try this in, in Ontario in 2023 and see how we get on. Um, and it's really building off the the current structure of soccer competitions and, and festivals and tournaments that happen right across the province of the country uh, every summer um, and adding an accessible component to, to those festivals so that for the clubs out there that are running a, an all abilities or a breaking barriers or even a, a Special Olympics type program, um, that there is a component in there for, for those athletes with a disability that want to be part of something bigger and should be part of something bigger. Um, so we're going to support four clubs this summer, uh, one in May, one in June, one in July, and one in August, to host that component as part of their typical 
um, clubs on a festival that they would they would run. And we're looking forward to announcing those those four clubs in the next month or so. We think we've got three of the slots filled. We're just going to work out who that who that fourth club that fourth host will be. Um, one of the next components that we've really seen grow in 2022 is that blind soccer piece. Um, and uh, we've actually just been on a call with a, a club out in BC that is looking to start something in 2023, and we're excited to help them start on that journey. Um, there is a new program that's going to start in London, Ontario, with London Whitecaps in the next week or two. Um, so we're excited to see that get off the ground and uh, be another program to support the two in Ontario right now at Pickering Football Club and North Mississauga Soccer Club that are doing really well. Um, and both of those clubs will be competing at the provincial championships um, sure. in Oshawa uh, at the start of February. So we'll, we'll further grow that blind soccer piece from not only uh, educating more clubs and getting them involved in, in offering this type of program, uh, but also looking at revisiting our successful blind soccer camp that we ran this, or sorry, last May 2022 uh, at the Lake Joe facility uh, and look to do something similar in 2023. Uh, so Soccerability Canada is working with Ontario Blind Sport Association uh, to come up with uh, some successful grant funding and applications so that we can host that at a uh, reduced cost to the attendees uh, and all being well, have another great group of players, coaches and match officials um, join us for a, a weekend of uh, training. So, so those are really sort of... Sorry, go on, Quite all right. Um, so I'm just wondering, what are some of the key benefits for someone with a disability being able to participate in sport? I mean, for someone with a vision impairment, uh, I'd imagine there aren't as many accessible recreation and sport opportunities as one would hope. You're, you're right. It's certainly, certainly limited for, for blind and visually impaired um, athletes and participants. Um, you know, we, we know about this with the health benefits of sport participation, you know, lower blood pressure, um, reduction of weight gain, kind of all of those things that are you know, common common knowledge. But I think one of the things that people usually underestimate is the social piece um, and the mental health piece, which is certainly growing as a, as a topic now in, in sport across the board. Um, but we really see it um, with something like blind soccer. A lot of um, blind and visually impaired sports are quite... Um, uh, sort of isolated to a certain extent. If you're if you're doing um, visually impaired cycling, then it's you and a, a partner on a tandem bike. If you're doing the track, then it's a, you and a, an athlete, a guide running with you with a with a cord between the two of you. Um, so, sort of you and one of the participants, and um, very much sort of a, a linear type of sport. Um, soccer has so many benefits because you're participating with a whole bunch of teammates. So there's that connectivity on the field with your teammates and with the opposition. Um, sitting on the bench waiting to go on, there's that kind of connectivity and collaboration there. And then just in the changing room with the, the banter that goes on between the players and the coaches um, is really a fun part to you know be a part of and that social side of things. Um, but also the, the feeling of, of not being isolated, of being there with, with friends and people that also enjoy the sport, physical activity uh, with you. Is really important, and one of the other things I like about soccer is that it's it's really through 360 degrees of motion. So you know, at any time you could be shifting to your left and then turning around full circle and then have to jump run across over to your right. You might be running, jogging, sprinting, crawling sometimes, depending on what's happened with the play. 
jostling and fighting off another opposition player to get to the ball and keep it. Um, and all the time that that's going on, that, you know, as I say to so many people, there are so many things going on in the athlete's head because now you've got to listen to the ball and where that is on the field. Um, you might be listening to the coach on the side or to the goalkeeper. You're listening to your teammates on the field that are calling to let you know that they're there as well as trying to cut out the noise of the opposition and what they might be saying or what they might be communicating. So there are so many dynamics to, to blind soccer that I think people just don't appreciate until really you literally stand on the field, put an eye shade on, and then try and dribble the ball around and understand what kind of cues I need to be aware of and how many different things are going on the field at, at one particular time. Um, so for, for blind visually impaired athletes, I know my players, and I've spoken a lot to to other players uh, across the country. Um, they get so many other benefits from it that uh, I think sometimes we, we underestimate and we think just purely about the, the, the sport or the event of soccer. So you raised an interesting point as you were going there. Uh, so much as being a part of a team is different because if you are dealing with a newly acquired vision loss, for example, you might start to think that this is something that no one's going to understand that this is something I have to face alone. But I've heard time and again that being a part of a team sport, meeting someone of similar abilities opens up a whole new world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I joke with my players every week, you know, these, these guys have got a better social life than me. You know, they're maybe at a party or a, a barbecue or something the day before and then they're off to go to a a meal or a, a tour of a, a facility or something in the afternoon after training. So that connectivity doesn't just open up the opportunity to play as teammates on the field and kind of learn from each other and learn with the coach. Um, but outside of that, um, there are other opportunities to learn about what other people are, are doing, what they're doing in their social life. Uh, I mean, last last summer I, I joked I had um, three new players turn up and one of them had got a huge backpack on their back. And I said, well, what, what's with the backpack? They'd, they'd got a, a wheel trans or an Uber ride into the, to the soccer location. And they said, oh, we're going kayaking after this. And I said, well, how the heck does that work? And they said, well, we've looked it up. We know that there's a beach two kilometers from the field here. So we're going to walk down there. We've got this inflatable kayak that we're going to put together. Um, and we're going to go out in the, in the bay just off the, the, the little beach area. And, and I was blown away, but I was blown away as a sighted coach. I could see the reaction of some of the other players that had just not even conceived of this sort of idea or, or an opportunity before. So, you you've, you know, in every team, you've got those people that push the boundaries and those that, you know, maybe sit back a little bit and wait to see uh, what's happening. So even within our blind soccer team here at the one at Pickering, there are those that want to push the boundaries that are very progressive, innovative, and want to see what they can do next and challenge themselves. And then there are the others that are maybe a bit more risk-averse. I'm, I'm kind of one of those type of people that says, you know what, I'm just going to wait back and see see how this plays out, and then maybe I'll jump in later. So it's great to see that that happens in every sort of team environment. Those, those opportunities and those social um, kind of experiences exist. And I look forward to... Um, you know, where this goes with the programs that we have, uh, what some of those boundaries will be. Um, we had one of our players actually published his um, uh, autobiography about a month before Christmas. Um, so being able to share that with his other teammates 
and then with the coaches and then as being able to amplify that through social media um, has enabled people to either uh, download a digital version from Amazon or print a hard copy. Um, so we're always looking and learning from each other uh, on, on what people are doing that's, you know, is fantastic, exciting and something that we, we can all support. Like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Absolutely. Thanks, Ken. Of course. In this segment of our show, Richard Allegro will be telling us about AHEAD. So, can you tell me a little bit about AHEAD? Sure. AHEAD is the, um... AHEAD is... Uh, stands for the Association on Higher Education and Disability. And uh, we've been around uh, since the 70s, <coughs> pardon me, um, in response to the um, establishment of the um, uh, Section 504 of the Re Rehabilitation Act here in the U.S. Uh, and uh, people who worked at uh, colleges and universities uh, across the country uh, learned about this act, which had uh, some guidance, some very minimal guidance about um, serving uh, disabled students in higher education, but uh, didn't have a lot of detail. So uh, professionals in uh, the, that field uh, got together and uh, just started to work on uh, ways and methods for uh, making their campuses more accessible. And over the uh, years, over the decades, and then again with the passing of the um, ADA in the U.S., um, the uh, organization became even more um, established and uh, formalized. And uh, so uh, today we have about 2,000-some members, and ahead of uh, primarily provides a professional development to um, disability services personnel and other college personnel and faculty and others on um, uh, some key uh, areas such as uh, civil rights law for disabled students, uh, technology, uh, practices for uh, managing disability services offices, those types of things. Uh, but also we uh, do some policy work around disability in higher education to um, increase access. So we work with an organization in Washington, D.C. that uh, focuses on those kinds of things, um, increasing um, access to um, financial aid, that, uh, technologies, that kind of thing. So how do you reach out to professionals in the field to let them know that... Uh, you're there to support them and guide them in terms of disability policy and development. Sure, sure. Well, we have an annual conference uh, in, in the summer, uh, which we um, put on around the country uh, in different uh, cities and, and do a lot of um, advertising about that. But in addition to that, we have, especially since uh, the um, onset of COVID, uh, have increasing um, webinars online, workshops. Um, we do different um, individual trainings of schools across the country. Um, so our, our website is the main uh, or kind of the key uh, 
place for people to find out about us, but we are also present on LinkedIn and in Twitter and Facebook, some other social media, just to get the word out. Uh, in addition, we uh, also have uh, affiliates or chapters, I guess, of a head in uh, various states and regions across the country. And um, those folks, so it's kind of a, from the ground up, people locally who are working in higher education come together and uh, discuss uh, ideas, concepts, learn about new um, technologies uh, at, at their level. But then from there, they connect with the national ahead. So do you find that uh, higher education institutions are typically receptive to your work? They find that, uh, yeah, they have that aha moment, if you will, that things can be made better for students with disabilities. Sure. Well, this, uh, this field, or this, uh, most um, campuses have an office of disability resources, or you might call them accessibility services. Uh, a vast majority of them here have an office such as that. So uh, for the most part, um, we're part of the fabric of an institution, um, and, and our offices, or, or the, the offices, they're not ahead offices, they're just offices, have done a lot of work over the years to um, engage with faculty and administrators and um, you know, help the campuses to meet their obligations under law, but also to uh, just um, talk about ways to make their campuses more uh, welcoming. Uh, at the same time, uh, we do hear from students and families who still uh, continue to uh, experience uh, discrimination or issues, various kinds of issues around accommodations uh, in their um, academic programs or on campus. Um, actually, to that end, um, ahead um, uh, currently working with uh, the University of Minnesota, uh, we have a, a grant uh, that a federal grant um, to establish uh, an information center uh, called the National Center for College Students with Disabilities. And uh, we were funded for that uh, five years ago, and now we're in a second uh, phase of that uh, going forward. And uh, our focus, that grant program, is to uh, more concernedly uh, reach out to families and students, other college personnel, administrators, policymakers, that kind of thing, so, on that broader standpoint uh, beyond uh, just the disability services offices. So, um, so with that, uh, people are becoming more aware, but at the same time, we also hear that um, students um, may not be getting the accommodations that uh, they should be getting, or maybe are still um, finding attitudes that are ableist, uh, faculty telling students, you know, you, maybe you shouldn't be in this, uh, this uh, discipline or something. Uh, so that's dismaying to hear. Um, we don't always know which uh, campus the students are, are talking about, but um, what we do, uh, we find out that many of those are not associated with a head. So it seems that they're kind of out of the loop. So that's kind of a piece of that puzzle that we need to um, address getting the word out about um, current uh, trends and um, requirements, obligations that colleges should be um, putting into place.
like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Uh-huh. Andy Link will be right back after these commercial messages, so stay tuned. Did you know CGEM collaborates with clubs and organizations both on the University of Windsor campus and in the general Windsor Access community? There are a bunch of different ways your group can collaborate with CGM to help bring it more attention, but also make your current group project a little easier. We can schedule an interview to help the community learn more about your club or organization. Don't worry, the interview can be pre-recorded, so have no fear of misspeaking. If you're looking for a smaller way to advertise something special with your group, look no further. We can create PSAs for events, fundraisers, volunteer calls, new clubs, and more. We have you covered. Then there's events. If your group is struggling to get everything accounted for with your event, why not collaborate with CGM? We can help gather volunteers, secure a venue, equipment, catering, and more. Save yourself the stress of setting up your event while creating a new connection. Interested or just have questions? Email us at info.cgmfm at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. Welcome back to HandyLink, sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. more information, check out ICHA Windsor on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. Earlier in our show, Richard Allegra told us a little bit about AHEAD, and Matt Greenwood told us about Sockability. This next interview is a post-dated one, so some of the events referred to may already have passed. In this segment of our show, Donna Winowski will be giving us an update on the Pericarditis Alliance. So what's uh, the latest with the Alliance? Uh, good morning. Uh, the latest with the Alliance. Uh, well, we're, as you know, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the proper diagnosis, management, and treatment of pericardial disease. Um, we've only been in existence for a couple of years, but we've been making some strides in our short time. Um, we have a great website that is reaching thousands of people worldwide every month, and we're going to be making some updates to that in the year ahead in 2023. We've found a medical illustrator that will help us by adding illustrations that will um, better show um, <laughs> what we want want um, people to understand about the disease. Um, a medical writer to help us um, dissect some of these medical articles that are a little bit hard to understand. So we're looking forward to making some improvements to our website. Um, we're also planning to launch a virtual support group in 2023. Um, again, inviting folks from around the world that are suffering from pericarditis to participate in a Zoom setting um, that we will envision to be a safe and supportive setting. And we're planning another uh, question and answer event with some of the top pericarditis doctors in the world in 2023. Um, also, since we launched, we've been able to connect a little bit better with some other organizations, um, well, another organization um, in Europe that uh, has dedicated um, resources for pericarditis. So the European Society of Cardiology has a working group for myocardial and pericardial disease. Um, so we've tapped into that so that we can um, combine our resources and be aware of what, what each other is doing. 
So, for those who might have missed our prior interview, how does pericarditis typically affect a person? Um, pericarditis itself um, is usually an acute disease. So, um, you may hear of, like, I myself have heard of a number of people now that have gotten pericarditis and it wasn't so serious. Um, so, you may hear of someone getting an episode, having an episode of pericarditis and it's acute. It responds well to um, treatments like NSAIDs, um, and it resolves within a few months. But there's um, pericarditis becomes a rare disease for those folks that have chronic pericarditis or um, recurrent pericarditis in cases where the damage to the pericardium. So the pericardium is the sac that surrounds your heart. Pericarditis occurs when there is um, damage to that sac. So the inside lining of the sac that goes around your heart, um, it it can fill up with fluid and cause difficulty with um, the heart, cause difficulty with the heart beating. So folks will experience chest pain um, because of that. And in, in very serious and rare cases, that fluid buildup build up and or that inflammation can cause a person's, um, <laughs> like the very worst case, um, cause their heart to stop beating. So you need to make sure that there's still room for your heart to beat in that sac. And there are people um that and again that this is what causes causes recurrent or chronic pericarditis to be considered a rare disease that have pericarditis um come back so um it may respond to treatment the pain goes away the inflammation seems to taper down but then they call it a flare it flares back up again and they they're in pain again and needing to go through treatment again so when you have recurrent pericarditis, it can be very debilitating because it comes back um, and you don't know when you're going to have a flare necessarily and it causes folks to miss work, miss life activities, um, you know, not be able to live a full life. So when you say it's a rare form, do you know offhand about how many people would be affected by that? Oh boy, I have a... I'm, embarrassed to quote a number, but um, I feel like what I have read from the pharmaceutical com- pharmaceutical companies is about 40,000 people a year in the United States, but um, I'm hesitant to say a number. Sorry. Quite all right. So, with the Alliance itself, in 2022, what was the greatest success moment? You know, we were our greatest success moment was pulling off a very well-attended question and answer event, um, a Zoom seminar um, with top pericarditis doctors in the world. So all of the doctors on our board, and they come from all over the United States, and we have one doctor in Italy, um, the the doctors um, uh, answered questions about the disease. So uh, we had um, a, a good amount of participation. We had a lot of people send in questions and a lot of people join the seminar. Um, so it was great to see all of these these folks come together in support of our disease to both answer questions and also to have their questions answered. So, so that was my most exciting thing to see us do this year. So if you could send any message to the community about the need for greater awareness of pericarditis, what would you say? 
You know, I think um, what we've seen is that um, many doctors don't realize that pericarditis, well, I shouldn't say many doctors, but I should say many people don't realize that pericarditis can come back. So um, it's not just an acute disease. It can be a chronic or recurrent disease. Um, So that would be my... um, the area that I believe needs the best awareness is that uh, even if you're uh, like a patient's pericarditis responds to treatment and goes away, it can come back and um, it's still very painful. Like, thank you for taking time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. You're welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. Very pleased to have been able to feature ahead on this week's show. But the fact is, when it comes to disabilities in education, there are a lot of myths out there, such as the idea of giving extra test time. Some people think that's an unfair advantage. Truth is, simply about leveling the playing field. If you give a person with a disability the opportunity to learn and to thrive with equal potential to their fellow students, they will achieve great things. It is simply a matter of equality, allowing a student to reach their best. And I cannot emphasize this next point enough. It is never the place of any teacher, professor, or what have you, to say this is all you can achieve to a person with a disability. They cannot measure a human's potential or their desire to go above and beyond. The fact is, You can take such criticism, such harshness, and it can become set in stone, which is unjustifiable and unfair. Never allow this to happen. This has been HandyLink. I'm your host, Cam Wells, reminding you we're all equal. So get on out there and have yourselves a good one. Something tells me you've earned it, folks. We'll see you next week.